Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to today's Daily Friends Show special. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined today by Dr. John Endress. How are you, John? Very well, well thanks. And you, Nicholas, uh, glad to be back on the show and also glad that it's the end of the year. Indeed. Um, I'm hoping for rain, but uh, today we are just going to be going through the uh, the, deep, the sort of... Um, you know, the ins and outs of the year that was and what we've got to look forward to will be our final show for the year. So I hope that you all enjoy. So, John, let's get straight into it. I think in many ways, you know, South African politics, the most important question for many years has been, what is the ANC doing? How is the ANC? Where, which direction is the ANC going? What are policies is it, is it embracing? And I think we did talk about this in our wrap-up of last year, but what is your sense of how the ANC's fortunes are looking as they head into what will probably be quite a decisive election in 2024 that is sure to shake up things, I think? Um, are they going to maintain the majority? There's been some speculation that they'll be able to just edge the 50% mark. There's some speculation that they'll be down. Um, we've seen all sorts of stuff going on with them. We've had uh, resignations from the party recently. We've had money troubles. Um, we've had by-elections that have gone badly for the party. What's your sense of the ANC's fortunes, generally speaking, going into 2024? So I think overall, Nicholas, uh, what we spoke about last year, at the end of last year, has pretty much continued to be the case. Uh, and if, if you'll recall, what we spoke about was that there are some factors that you need as a political party in order to, to keep your numbers up. And many of those factors are not available to the ANC anymore. Uh, we spoke about the fact that it had run out of ideas. Uh, most of the ideas it was coming up with were old ideas. There wasn't really anything new coming out of the party. Uh, we said that it had run out of credibility. So uh, people were less and less inclined to believe what the party said or what it stood for because it was so mired in corruption and scandals. And the party had also run out of money. Um, so we remember during the local government elections, in the run-up to those elections, the party wasn't able to pay staff. Uh, and I think since then, its money troubles have probably not really faded. Um, I think they, they sort of found a few rands here and there in a sofa or somewhere uh, that managed to to just ease the, the pressure a little bit. But overall, I think that the party is still under quite a lot of financial pressure. And we saw stories the past week of uh, Ezelweni, uh, a, a company that had sold some election posters to the ANC and not been paid. Uh, and trying to go after the ANC for its in, money. In 2019, not just 2021, it was actually a 2019 election deal. That's right. Um, and they, they produced banners and election posters um, to, you know, a very large, to the value of a very large sum of money, uh, over 100 million rand, which they weren't paid for, uh, went to court to try to get. Uh, the ANC uh, appealed the judgment ordering them to pay. But the Supreme Court of Appeal also said, you've, you've got to pay. You know, you, you bought the stuff. Uh, there was an agreement. You can't really get out of this. And the value of that has ballooned to 150 million rand by now, which is uh, a significant amount. I was trying to get a sense of whether that, that is a big number in ANC terms or not. And uh, some information put out last week suggests that between 2019 and 2022, over a four-year period, the ANC spent about 2 billion rand. So that means its annual budget must be around 500 million. 
and 150 million as a share of 500 million is almost a third. That is a big number, you know. So if, if they get nailed for that, if they have to pay that, that is going to put a dent, dent in the coffers. Plus, also there's another thing you can put it in relation to, which is uh, that the ANC has a property portfolio valued at over 300 million rand, which is of course very significant. But the debt that is being collected now is half the value of that property portfolio. So it is a bit of a problem for the party. Uh, I think there are many ways for it to find the money, uh, but not many ways that are legitimate or that would pass the Party Political Funding Act uh, requirements. And so what may be looming for the party is uh, some embarrassment uh, if, if, if it uh, is forced to resort to illegitimate ways of, of, of closing that hole, or else a real problem if they can't find a legitimate way of doing it. I think sanction is unlikely, but embarrassment is quite possible. Nick? No, I, I think, I think there's, a, there's been a bit of a hope among people who are not fans of the ANC, that this is somehow going to be the silver bullet that knocks the party out. But I think that's very unlikely. I think in politics, silver bullets are um, not a very common phenomenon. Uh, okay, let us move on to our next question. And this is, so, you know, the ANC is in a fair amount of trouble, but of course it takes two to tango. And one of the big questions we had going into this year was, what are the opposition parties going to do, sort of broadly speaking, are they actually going to be in a position where they might be able to take government from the ANC at a national level? Um, I think the question of whether they are going to take government at a number of provincial levels is less controversial because I think that's very likely at this stage. Um, but without focusing on any specific party to start off with, what's your sense of how the opposition as a sort of whole um, to the ANC has managed to uh, uh, organize itself over the last year? I think we can start answering that by maybe first looking at the polling numbers and what they say about the ANC itself. Uh, so in your, in your opening question, you asked, you know, is the ANC going to retain its majority, even if it is reduced or not? Um, and I think the jury is still pretty much out on that. In most of the polling that we've seen through the course of the year, the ANC has been just below 50. Uh, and I think that is probably an accurate assessment of where things stand at the moment. So our likeliest call, I think, still remains that the ANC will come in just below 50, find uh, a few smaller partners maybe to build a majority and stay in, in power for another five years, which would mean that the policy environment is not going to change much. We have, however, also had a very bad load shedding year, uh, which has been, you know, <laughs> devastating, really. And it has been amazing that we've not seen more impact on the ANC numbers as a result of that load shedding. And that partly speaks maybe to the inability of the opposition to make hay out of this, uh, these electricity failures. Uh, the opposition is holding up in its numbers. Um, I think the DA we're seeing between 25, maybe 27%, which is quite decent. It's a good showing. Uh, the IFP seems to be doing quite well. Um, so it is, uh, seems to be increasing its support, maybe because of disgust with the ANC, with Inquisitor Natal, uh, where the party is being blamed for a lot of the chaos and disorder that has been uh, a feature of life in that province over the past few years. Um, other opposition parties also seem to be holding up their levels. Um, Action SA, I think, doing quite well, but maybe not quite as well as the party itself might hope. Uh, but collectively, I'd put the, the multi-party charter, uh, MPC, which is the new name for that moonshot pact, at probably around 30, maybe 35% if they're lucky, which if accurate, means that we're not going to see a change in government uh, from an ANC-led government to an opposition-led government in 2024. Uh, so I think on the 
balance of evidence as things are at the moment, that is the likeliest outcome. Now, it's at least still six months to the elections, half a year. A lot can happen in half a year. Uh, so we have to keep watching it and see, see where things go. Nick. So just generally speaking on how well the parties have worked together, there's been quite a lot of squabbling, but what do you make of their actual ability to function in the governments that they are in? Um, Joburg doesn't seem to have gone particularly well for the opposition. They weren't really able to, to kind of make a deal that suited all the parties there. Um, I think because there was a lot of division over whether the PA was a reliable partner or not. And then we've had, of course, um, Twane, which has had all sorts of troubles this year, um, particularly that very big strike. There were some divisions in the coalitions there. Most of the fighting seems to be between the DA and Action SA. Um, but, uh, you know, do you think that they're managing to work out a way to work together or, or do you think these divisions are going to continue showing up? Mm. So for now, it does seem that the divisions are still holding up and still there. There's sort of anecdotal and early evidence that is maybe not quite trustworthy that there are Sorry, I think my connection just dropped there. Yes, I you did. You said on. that they are that they are managing to work together. Uh, yes, I think they're recognizing the importance of having to work together if they want to have any success in 2024 or in subsequent years. Um, so the IRR attended the multi-party charter conference uh, two weeks ago, and there certainly it seemed like the, the hostility between Action SA and the DA was contained. Um, we also heard some, some lip service being paid to the notion that they have to work together, and we might even see some uh, joint party activities next year under the MPC banner which if they transpire, you know, that would be quite a good sign. But it is, I think, a very obvious conclusion that voters, you know, who, who might be willing to consider not voting ANC and shifting their vote are not going to do so if the alternative is as unstable as uh, ha has been the case in Johannesburg and Ekuroleni especially. However, I think we must also say that what these parties are doing is something very, very difficult. You know, even in, in international comparison, having a three-party coalition is... You know, tough to, ma to manage, it's not easy. But if it's eight parties or more, it becomes exponentially more difficult. And in a sense, the municipal level is a suitable training ground to figure out what works, what doesn't work, uh, make mistakes, and hopefully figure out the right lessons for when you get to provincial or even national level. Nick? Definitely. Um, okay, let's move on to talking about the not-so-opposition opposition in the form of the EFF. Um, how do you think they've fared this year? And and we'll come to the second part of the second question just now. But but first, let's start with that one. How do you think the EFF is doing? Uh, there's been some indications, I think, in by-elections that they might be able to capitalize on ANC weakness and eat up a lot of the ANC supporters drawing away. But there's also been evidence that they haven't really been able to do that. And uh, national polls have kind of been all over the place. Some polls, mm -hmm. I think one poll put them at 17%. But most gotcha. polls, including our own, have put them much closer to 10%, which is kind of about where they are now. Yeah, so, so I think in terms of the polling, the EFF is really hard to read. Um, as you say, the results have been bouncing all over the place. Between 10 and 17 or even 18%, um, it's hard to know what to make of it. But in, in broader terms, I think what we saw during the past year was, in a sense, a lapse of discipline within the EFF. 
where after the local government elections, mostly the party managed to stay out of government because it realized or realizes that its brand really is disruption and, and being on the outside. It is the image, you know, being the outsider fighting those in power. But once it went into government with the ANC, uh, for example, in Ekuruleni and Johannesburg, that discipline dropped. And they said, okay, now we're sort of getting close to power, getting close to the resources. It's really hard to say no to this, so let's go for it. And they did go for it. Whether that paid off for them or not, a uh, good question. I think it might not have in the sense that many in the ANC have not relished the experience of working with the EFF in government. We saw a report from David Makuras uh, recommending that the ANC break off its relationships in government with the EFF. Um, I think Sir Ramaphosa himself has not particularly uh, enjoyed being in a relationship with that party, uh, you know, even if it's at a different level of government. And therefore, the EFF might have taken the risk of, of peaking too soon, so to speak. So uh, dropping the discipline of staying out of government, being lured in, and uh, going on to pay the price in, in future elections, also in terms of its eligibility as a coalition partner. Um, so the fear has always been great that the ANC and the EFF would join together at national level. I think that fear is not entirely ameliorated, um, but I think it is somewhat reduced by the fact that that relationship has not worked out, um, as many in the ANC might have hoped it to do. That having been said, uh, there are some in the ANC, I think, who are able to work with the EFF and have enjoyed the experience. And if those members of the ANC were to uh, uh, come into power within the ANC to control the ANC, then we might see a much greater likelihood that the ANC and the EFF will work together. Nick. So that was going to be my second question is, you know, how is the ANC-EFF coalition prospect looking up? I mean, I've kind of myself sort of wavered between the two points of view that uh, they're, you know, so ideologically similar on so many of their basic understandings of the world that actually they're fated to be ending up together. But then when you see it in practice and you look at the way that their patronage networks clash with each other, you sort of think, mm, actually, maybe this is not really going to work out uh, so well. And, and that has definitely been the case in Necrolidia and Joburg. Um, but, you know, interestingly, despite the fact that the ANC is apparently, I believe, that the NEC actually made a decision to begin looking for a way out of those coalitions, they still haven't done it. There's been lots of complaining about the EFF. They still actually haven't gone out, which I think is is something that's quite interesting. Um, so that division clearly remains. But uh, <clears throat> there's been some reporting as well, and I don't think it's very credible. Um, but it's it's worth discussing that uh, you know the fear that the ANC and EFF will go into coalition together is going to cause the DA to go into coalition with the ANC. Firstly, how likely do you think that is? And secondly is, uh, you know, would that be a good idea or a bad idea? What, what do you make of that? Well, that I think would be a combination that bears great risks for both parties. Um, the ANC risks being um, outshone by DA competence, maybe. And I think the DA risks being infected with the worst vices of the ANC um, if it comes into power and, and losing its, its liberal ethos, um, its, its integrity, its accountability within the party. That having been said, uh, amongst voters, there seems to be support for the notion um, who I think realize that the other party, the one that they don't support, might be able to bring something to the partnership that their own party is lacking. In other words, uh, ANC supporters, I think, broadly recognize now that their party has not been particularly adept at the business of government, at service delivery, 
um, at, at basic competence and administration. And looking to the Western Cape, they can say, well, you know, there's a way of making it work. The DA seems to have figured it out. Wouldn't it be great if those two worked together and, and sort of, you know, got things working? It would actually be quite nice. And I think on the part of the DA supporters, um, there's uh, a sense of, of uh, awkwardness about uh, being perceived as a white party or a racist party. And being in a partnership with the ANC might overcome that to some extent. We'd be able to say, you know, we're now working with the movement of the people, the very embodiment of the will of the people. So who could accuse us now of, of not being uh, working in the interests of all South Africans? It sounds a bit far-fetched, um, but nonetheless, uh, I think there's some validity to it. Whether it's going to happen or not, I think depends a bit on the, on the actual election results. So, you know, the, it becomes a numbers game. The ANC, I think, would definitely prefer not to do it. And if they are able to cobble together a small a coalition with small parties, I think that would be the preferred uh, option. But if they get caught in a squeeze between having to choose the EFF and the DA, and if the people who are opposed to the EFF are in control of the ANC, then maybe that rapprochement and that that uh, that uh, might happen between the ANC and the DA. I just sort of struggle to even imagine how that would work. I think the costs to the DA are, amongst its core support base if it went to the coalition of the ANC would be extremely high, which is one of the reasons why I don't think it's very credible that they are actually um, very seriously considering this as an option. Mm. But mm. go ahead. Uh, I would also add to that that the expectation would be that the DA would turn around governance in its partnership with the ANC. That is quite a long shot, you know. Yes. <laughs> Our governance is a pretty far <laughs> shot. Uh, the DA would be the junior partner. So the likeliest outcome is that governance would actually not improve by much, and the DA would be blamed for that. because Exactly, because, hmm. you know, so many, as, as we've discussed on the show all the time, so many of the causes, um, and we'll get on to more of this later in, the, in this episode, but um, the causes of, of, of what's wrong is that there are fundamental problems with the way that ANC policy is trying to run the country. So what, is the ANC suddenly going to give up on BEE? I don't think so. Mm. Um, well, in which case, you know, sort of, how does this work? I mean, the, the way it works would be that the DA would have to be quite strategically astute, I think, and quite ruthless in the way that it approaches this. Uh, it would need to recognize the maybe the desperation within the ANC to want to make it work and use that to impose the conditions that it needs to make it work and say, look, you know, we, we can't work with you if you've got EWC on your program, if you've got the NHI on your program. Uh, those things need to go. Otherwise, it's not going to work. So if you're able to negotiate that up front, you've got a chance. Um, of course, what's the problem in South Africa is you've only got 14 days to do that after the elections. And that's a very short time to negotiate a, a complex coalition agreement that will stand the test of time. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a it's very much a long shot, that one. Um, so let's just talk about the DA generally. Uh, by-elections have showed, I think, mostly kind of mixed results for the DA. They've defended nicely some places. They've had some growth in a couple of places here and there, but also they've lost uh, definitely some wards that I think they would have liked to have won. Particularly, I think they've, they've suffered a bit in by-elections against the Patriotic Alliance, um, who, who have been, I think, very good at fighting by-elections. They've, they've shown that that's particularly, in particular, a skill of theirs. Uh, what do you make of the way uh, of where the DA is sitting at at the moment? So I think overall it's, it's doing quite well. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think in, in past elections, often there has been an instance before the elections where you know something went badly wrong, which I think then cost them at the polls. 
at the moment, I think they've they've behaved sensibly, responsibly, cautiously where they needed to be cautious, um, and have really handled themselves well. What does concern me a little bit, or what I worry about, is the proposal that's been floating around to find a, a parachuted-in candidate to lead the MPC charge, um, somebody who is not white. And this is unfortunately very reminiscent, I think, of the pre-2019 DA. This, this is a long history of things going wrong for the DAs when they've tried something like this. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I think you know, the, the problem with this is that voters are not stupid. And I think they perceive this as pandering, you know, sort of, you know, the, the voters won't notice that this person hasn't been a member of the party, doesn't have a history in the party, doesn't share an ideological affinity with the party. But if they're the right skin color, then, you know, we'll vote for that party. It's, it's not a great approach, um, but there seem to be some hopes placed in it. Yes. Uh, I mean, look, it might be slightly different, I suppose, this time, because they would be able to avoid some of that criticism by saying, look, we, this is um, this is the multi-party charters candidate. It's not our candidate, mm -hmm. uh, which might help. But even then, can't you find one within the, within the party? Right, exactly. Uh, okay, <clears throat> let's go on to one of the other big players, uh, the IFP. Um, there's been this sort of ongoing debate, I think, about where the IFP stands. It looks very much like, and we can see this from by-election results and from some polling, the IFP is likely to do quite well in KZN um, and even nationally. Maybe, uh, I think the highest I've seen the poll is about 10% or so, which is where they got in 1994, which is their best ever result. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to quite reach 10%, but uh, we'll, we'll have to see. But there's still this sort of open question, I think, about how, you know, where the where the IFP sort of finds itself, especially now that Putlesi has passed. Um You've got this vision of the IFP as a kind of Zulu conservative movement that's sort of in favor of traditional leaders and that sort of thing, but it's generally more less sort of socialist, less left than, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like a sort of an old-fashioned right-wing party. And then uh, that's one vision of the, of the IFP, but then there's another vision of the IFP that they are kind of just the Zulu ANC and that ultimately they have more in common with the ANC. They've that despite the bad history between the two parties, been a lot of times when they've worked together, particularly at a sort of national level. And we, we can see pieces of evidence for this, like, for example, when the, uh, the IFP, I believe, has supported the ANC on a couple of pieces of legislation recently at the national level. It's also opposed them on some things, so it's very difficult to tell exactly what the rhyme or reason is going on there. Um, which way do you think the IFP will go? There's been some talk that, you know, maybe if the ANC gets, let's say, 46% of the next election and the IFP gets eight, that the IFP and ANC will go into coalition together and then that will help the ANC to avoid needing to suck up to the EFF. What do you make of that prospect? Mm. Uh, that is a, a bit of the sense I get as well, that there's a lot of ambiguity in, in how you look at the IFP. And it has been a member of this multi-party charter, I think, from the outset. I believe there have also been some successful corporations, uh, maybe even coalitions in KwaZulu-Natal at the municipal level. But I'm not sure that the IFP should be considered a dependable partner in that, in that partnership, the MPC partnership. Um, and my fear is exactly what you say, you know, that if, if the chips fall in the way that you just described, uh, it may very well be that the IFP breaks out of that MPC partnership 
and joins the ANC um, in pursuit of, of, of power and patronage uh, and the interests of its members. And uh, it's a bit of a pity because I think that party holds great potential, um, but it is still very much uh, a Zulu, a KwaZulu uh, Natal local, a regional party, I would say, and also an ethnic party. Um, but I think it would have potential to grow beyond that. I think that the reason it is increasing popularity on the one hand is I think it's growing in popularity because of uh, hostility towards the ANC. I think it's benefiting from that. And I think there's also a sympathy bonus from the, the death of uh, Prince Mangosuto Botelezi and the Zulu king as well. Um, so there's a bit of a remembering of Zulu heritage amongst the people in KwaZulu, uh, and that is, is benefiting the IFP. Yes, I think that it would be probably quite a short-term decision for the IFP if they did go into coalition the ANC. I, I suspect their voters would probably punish them for it. Um, so they they will want to stay away from that, in my opinion. Um, and it's, it's also worth saying that the IFP and DA have, have definitely had squabbles in KZN, particularly over um, in a couple of municipalities where they're in coalition. I think the DA was complaining that uh, there was an IFP uh, senior member who was corrupt. Um, but generally speaking, they've actually cooperated, I think, relatively well in KZN, which suggests maybe that they're going to go the other way, that they're going to sort of shy away from the ANC. So I think that is actually one of the very big questions as the IFP re-emerges as an important player on the political scene. And also, I think, if, if I may uh, interject, the interplay between provincial and national politics. So, you know, is, is there a scenario where the IFP could take control of KwaZulu-Natal, but only if it works with the DA and some other MPC parties? And would that coalition come into being if the IFP were to go into coalition with the ANC at national level? So th those two things might be mutually exclusive, uh, and the IFP would have to choose uh, what it wants to do. So that's a, a whole new dynamic that's coming into our politics in South Africa. I think it's going to be the interplay between provincial politics and national politics, and that's going to be uh, entertaining uh, and confusing, I think, to watch and observe. And I think the sign that the IFP is going to be a key player in the politics is the way that uh, all of the major political parties were very, very, uh, I don't know how else to say it, but sort of suck uppy when it came to the, the death with Lazy. It wasn't just that, you know, they were remembering this important South African character. There was, you know, the EFF was putting out the most sort of, oh, you know, we have our differences, but we love you guys. We love with Lazy and sort of things like that. And the ANC was, you know, uh, giving him lots of praise as well and beating with favors. The DA was super uh, friendly to them and making visits to the Zulu King and with Lazy's family and all that sort of thing. So I think all the parties do recognize that the IFB is, is going to be an important person to have on your team um, in the next uh, uh, parliament. Um, okay, let's very briefly just talk um, quickly about the other parties. I think you've mentioned Action SA a bit, um, how they seem a little bit like they've plateaued. I'm not sure. It's very difficult to tell because all we have is little bits of polling. Um, they sort of seem like they've carved out a niche for themselves, but they don't seem to be kind of exploding onto the political scene in, I think, a way that they they, they had signs of doing in the earlier stages of their party. Uh, what do you make of Action Estates Fortunes at the moment? Yeah, I, th I think I'd agree with that. Um, so in the polling, uh, their numbers are often so small as to be within the margin of error. 
So we have to speculate a little bit about where we think their support levels lie at a national level. I think they'll be sort of in the low single digits, uh, around 3% maybe, uh, with higher support probably in Gauteng, uh, where I think they'll do, they'll do it significantly better. I don't think that tallies with the party's own perceptions of its fortunes, uh, but the, the proof of the pudding will be in, in the eating uh, once the elections happen. We'll see what happens there. Um, overall, I think that many of these new parties are also not uh, shooting out the lights, you might say. So you've got Rise and Zanzi, I think, coming in. Uh, we're not seeing them appear in the polls. Uh, numbers are too small to, to perceive them. And similarly, I think also with BOSA, uh, Build One South Africa, Musi Maimane's movement, we haven't seen that. I think out of those new parties, probably Action is A is the one that's going to do the best. Yes. I, I, yeah, I think at this stage, BOSA and Rise and Zanzi should be expecting and aiming for sort of one or two seats in Parliament. Um, I, I don't see much, you know, who knows? There's still a lot of election campaign to go, but I suspect that's a result that they should realistically um, hope for um, mm. and aim for, not not try to, you know, <laughs> become the main opposition party uh, because they just don't have the resources, the, the infrastructure or anything like that to do that. And I think the polling recognizes that. Although, you know, we have so many small parties in South Africa that it gets very difficult to poll. Um, we, you, as you as you say, you know, there's the margin of error, and if the margin of error is let's say three percent, how do you poll a party like the Freedom Front Plus? You know, the Freedom Front Plus could double its vote share, and in that margin, and still be sort of in that margin of error. So you can't really tell whether they they're, they're growing or not. Um, okay, so uh, that answers those questions. The the last party I think to talk about is the sort of um, the wildest of wild dogs in the sense that they are, uh, I think, the most unpredictable for the most part is the Patriotic Alliance. Now, they have kind of angered, I think, pretty much everyone at some point. Uh, they have a habit of switching sides, particularly in these, say, sort of in a bunch of coalitions with the multi-party charter parties, and then they flipped, and now they've seemed to mostly, I think, everywhere that they're in coalition and government, they are in with the ANC EFF. Um, and do you think, firstly, that that is going to come back to bite them, the fact that they've sort of, that no one seems to be able to get on with them that well? And secondly, um, how are they going to fare, particularly in the Western Cape? Are they, uh, do they have any shot of taking the DA out below the 50% level in the Western Cape? So I think there are some really important lessons to learn from the PA experience in terms of where South Africa is heading in the coalition politics context. So the, the first lesson is that the successful parties in tomorrow South Africa are going to be those parties that can make coalitions work, that uh, you know are able to negotiate in a way that works, that are able to strike compromises that work, that are able to prove dependable when the time comes to, uh, to, to, to stake your position. And I think this is where the PA, through its very transactional approach in terms of switching sides, depending on what, you know, which way it, it wanted to go, is going to pay the price because it is losing the, the, the reputation that you need for reli reliability uh, and, and, and credible negotiating. And we've seen this, I think, with the PA going into coalition with the ANC EFF uh, in Johannesburg and Coralini, I believe, and expressing some unhappiness about being in that relationship, sort of wanting to change back to the, the DA-led side, uh, 
uh, and the DA is just saying, look, you know, we don't trust you. you know, we've, we've tried trusting you before. Uh, you, you betrayed us. Uh, so no, we're not letting you back in. That's the price you pay. And in a sense, this is what needs to happen in our politics in the future. Um, you know, as, as, as complicated as these coalitions are, this is what you've got to figure out as one of the players. How do you build a reputation? How do you uh, become trustworthy? How do you become recognized for what you can bring to a coalition like this? That's the big picture on the PA. Um, I think in terms of its, its direct support levels, I think it will do quite well amongst colored voters. In the Western Cape, I have a suspicion that it's going to do better on the national ballot than on the provincial ballot, uh, where I think that many colored voters in the Western Cape will probably trust the DA to uh, represent its interests better where it matters at the local level. Uh, but they'd be willing to take a shot on the PA at national level, you know, just to see what happens <laughs> and increase the influence of the party. And otherwise, uh, I think it'll be sort of a, a small, quite vehement party, um, but one that is not going to build a sustainable legacy or grow unless it manages to figure out how to how to become credible um, and to be recognized as as a, uh, a negotiating partner that you can work with. All right, let's change gears a little bit as we kind of wrap up the sort of political overview. Um, something that's concerned me a lot, and I think we started on the Daily Friends show talking at the very beginning of this year. I think one of our first episodes of the year was about attempted assassination of the councillors or assassination of councillors. And that's a story that's persisted right through the year. The media has, I think, uh, done actually some pretty good work on covering the shocking levels of political violence, particularly in KZN, but increasingly in other provinces too. And this is all seems to be mostly contained, thankfully, at the local level, but it's still very concerning. Um, I, I forget the name of the municipality, but there's one municipality in KZN where uh, all of the councillors, except for two out of, I think it was about 43, are in hiding at the moment because they fear being assassinated. Uh, we've recently had the murder, and we're not clear of the circumstances or the motivation yet, of the uh, chief whip of the Democratic Alliance in Ngeni municipality in KZN. There's been murders of councillors in uh, the Western Cape. In fact, there was recently a by-election. The EFF won a stunning victory in, uh, but that was because the previous ANC council was murdered. Um, so it's not clear... You know, that's the reason why there's that by-election in the first place. Uh, there's been an enormous amount of political violence. Do you think that this is something that's going to sort of grow to affect our national level? Are we going to start seeing voters maybe scared to cast their ballots in a certain way? Um, you know, there's always been, I think, a little bit of intimidation of political violence, particularly in some parts of rural SA, since forever. Um, but it's been kind of isolated to those areas. Do you think that there's a bigger problem growing here that we're seeing more violence into our politics or what's your take on this? I think it's still too soon to tell. Um, I think that the, the level of, of, of murders, especially of councillors, is already of a level that is very worrisome. Uh, I think our colleague Marius did some calculations that the general murder rate in South Africa is one of the world's highest at 40 per 100,000. But for councillors as a population group, it's probably a thousand per a hundred thousand. That's uh, you know twenty-five times higher, which is absolutely crazy. Um, the motives I think vary a bit, but I think many of these assassinations are for political reasons. Uh, for example, inter-party rivalries uh, or, or candidates vying for positions, that sort of thing. Um, and 
if it increases, it's a problem. I don't think that voter intimidation is going to be the main area of worry in this in this development, because voters are quite a, a diffuse, dispersed resource, um, whereas councillors or councillor positions are a very concentrated resource. That's why why conflict focuses on them. What is worrying is uh, the provincial level and also the national level. And I think we're going to see some cases at the provincial level um, and some of the sort of more, more contested uh, provinces that could happen. National level, I'm not seeing at the moment, but it's really hard to read. Um, you know, it's, it's still small numbers. Your, your sample size is very small. The trend isn't clear. It's just clear that the level at municipal level is far higher than it should be. It's a problem, you know, because uh, it undermines democracy. Who wants to be a councillor uh, if it puts your life at risk or if it means that you're going to have to be in hiding from, from your rivals within your same party? Um, that, that's a very, very big worry. I, I, you know, this is something that I also have some sort of personal experience with because I was a ward councillor for a little bit. And it, I think it is a very big problem for local government because in many ways, you know, ward councillors are really... The, the political positions in the country that really have the most contact with their voters. They're really actually, it's a system that I think on paper is one of the best in the country is that, uh, you know, board councillors, generally speaking, do actually know their communities pretty well and their communities are easily able to reach them. And that's, you know, for, for most political parties. But, you know, in my time as a councillor, I wasn't in a particularly contentious or difficult ward with, with major social problems. I was still threatened, I think, twice with being killed. Uh, by various voters, there's a lot of the frustration and the anger that South Africans feel. This is usually the only politician that they can find to take it out on. Um, there's also been this exactly it's relevant. Yeah. Uh, there's also been this general sort of, in my uh, experience, um, weakening of the position of councils in many cases that uh, they have. Uh, become very sort of at the mercy of their parties. They become very at the mercy of officials, um, and they're sort of given a lot of responsibility, but not a lot of um, power to actually do things, except through council. But council is normally dominated by sort of larger concerns about the various political parties and how they're negotiating with each other. And what this creates is a very sort of toxic environment when anyone with talent is desperate to get out of the position. And if this kind of political culture continues where people are being murdered, people are being threatened, people are being harassed, I mean, councillors regularly get their houses burned down in poorer areas. This is not a, not a, not a rare thing. Um, I, I know of a councillor who had to defend his house from an angry mob with a claw hammer because they wanted to burn it down uh, with his family inside. How are we supposed to get a functional local government <laughs> if this political culture sort of continues? So I do think it is it is sort of one of those crises that um, sort of almost goes beyond any one political party that, uh, you know, this does need to be somehow changed. And maybe that does mean that um, political parties need to have MPs who are more accessible to the public, something like that. I'm not quite sure what the solution is, but uh, it is a concern. Um, okay. Let's move on to talking a little bit about policy legislation, that kind of stuff. Uh, let me start with a more general question. Um, what were the big legislative policy changes this year, and, and what do they really say about where the, the country is headed um, in the sort of as the ANC goes towards the election? Mm. So I think we, we've seen quite a lot of 
rumbling, slow-moving processes being hurried along this year, um, and that would include expropriation without compensation. It would include the uh, amendment of the Employment Equity Act. It would include preferential procurement, and also the NHI, which are sort of all very big pieces of legislation, hate speech as well, uh, legislation that have been really been pushed by the ANC this year. And I think the reason for that is, you know, the desire to be shown to be doing something ahead of the elections, ideally something that's going to get votes. But many of these pieces of legislation are extremely uh, harmful if, if they're going to be passed, um, very worrisome. And maybe one of the small blessings would be that as the state gets weaker, hopefully it'll be less able to impose these things. I do get the impression that we're getting to the point now where uh, taxpayers and ordinary residents will have to start saying, je refuse, um, I'm just going to refuse to comply with stuff because you know this is getting a bit much. It's not only onerous, it's abusive, it's exploitative, it's extractive, and I'm not getting anything for my tax money. So I think you know things are heading maybe towards a, a showdown, a type of conflict, uh, ratepayers, boycotting rates, for example. We saw that happen in Durban this year. I know in Johannesburg, there's lots of rumblings about that as well. You know, just the frustrations being so, so great. And for the ANC, um, it's, it's, it's made its call. You know, it's pushing these pieces of legislation. There seems to be very little, um, I think, reasoning about whether this is a good thing to do or not. Um, this is the cards they are playing. It could backfire on them. Uh, potentially, if, if it breaks down the revenue mechanism. But that is a bit of a long shot. Uh, you know, SARS still works quite well, um, and it's rather hard to, ex uh, to escape its clutches. At the municipal level, maybe we're going to see a bit of that. I think there are some municipalities in rural areas where the billing function, the revenue collection function is all but collapsed. Uh, and you know, much of the dysfunctionality seems to have started in the smaller towns. It's now arrived in the big cities. And that can also apply on the revenue level. And, and then things are going to get really interesting. So one of the big pieces of legislation that's kind of gone through this year um, has been the National Health Insurance, which has gone through the National Assembly and now has gone through the National Council of Provinces and just needs to be, at the time of reporting, signed into law by Robert Pauza. So there is still a chance, I guess, that it could be turned around. But, I mean, there's a lot of things to talk about on NHI. The first one, and let me start with this one, is that it was very frustrating for people who are opposed to NHI to see so much of the kind of professional community and, the, and, the, and particularly the businesses, the big medical aids, kind of downplaying the idea that NHI was this terrible threat and sort of buying the government's promises that there would be some sort of carve out for them. Oh, the, this is not the final version of the bill. It'll be better by the time it gets to the end of the legislative process. Calm down, calm down. And there was, I think, a lot of... Um, medical aides and business executives and stuff seemed to kind of buy that line until it went through the National Assembly and suddenly there was this panic of, oh my God, this is actually happening. <laughs> we need to do something about this. Uh, and so there has been, I think, a lot more public resistance now to the national health insurance. Um, so firstly, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think I'm correct in my, my, my assessment of, of how, that, how that fight has gone? Mm, absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, South Africa's largest health insurer needs to be called out on this. Uh, Discovery, I think, has, has really not not covered itself in glory uh, in its commenting, its position on the national health insurance. It has not defended the interests of its clients, 
and has not defended the interests of medical health professionals who are all going to suffer if the NHI is going to be introduced. And discovery being the dominant force that it is and having the relationship with government that it has should have been much more forceful in opposing the NHI than it has been. And that has been a huge disappointment. I think for many people who currently have private medical insurance, um, it is a very, uh, more than just worrying or concerning, but scary thought to think that, you know, uh, the plan is to bring all of healthcare in South Africa to the level of the public uh, health sector, which is precisely the thing that people are trying to escape from by paying over and above their taxes out of their post-tax income, very substantial amounts in order to get a better quality of healthcare. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a real problem, a big threat. Can it be stopped? Um, I think there is a chance, but it is getting late in the day. My hope is that uh, once Ramaphosa has signed it into law, that there will be some significant legal challenges to the NHI, uh, to which I would hope the IR also joins in, in an amicus role to present its arguments. And the IR has been uh, opposing the NHI vociferously over a number of years now um, and written uh, incredible amounts of uh, opinion pieces, submissions, uh, letters to influential people reminding them that this is not the way to do healthcare at a national level. Uh, there are much better solutions available than, than what the NHI proposes to do. Definitely. Uh, I, I guess this is my next sort of question, and this kind of relates a little bit to this, uh, you know, there's obviously going to be more resistance to the NHI. There's going to be legal challenges, as you say. There's always a chance the president might bend to public pressure and veto it or send it back for revision or something like that. Um, but, you know, many critics have pointed out the sort of impossibility of, of even implementing this, this system um, because of its costs, because of the fact that it's sort of many hospitals don't meet its standards that it, that it sets, all sorts of stuff like that. Let's say it goes through to law. Let's say it manages to fend off the legal challenges. Are we going to see sort of a sudden, you know, shift into NHI? I'm not really sure on this point. There's this kind of, um, I guess there's this, this hope among some people that it's so sort of impossible and badly thought out of an idea that it will kind of be half sort of implemented slowly over time and mostly just used as an election gimmick by the ANC. Do you think that's just sort of rosy... Uh, glasses on this or, or, or what's your take on that? So I think the assessment that it's going to be phased in over a long time is accurate. It's not going to be an overnight thing, but I think it's a mistake to be relaxed about it for that reason. Um, I th also think it's a mistake to think that just because there isn't enough money, it's not going to be done. Because if you can't scale the, the money to the size of the requirement, you can scale down the requirements to the money available. So you can introduce an NHI, which will be absolutely shocking, shockingly bad, you know, really, really terrible system uh, because there's not enough money and because it's a bad idea overall. But that's not a reason not to do it if the reason you're pursuing it is ideological, uh, because what you want to do is to hand out freebies effectively, no matter what the cost. Uh, effectively, you, you know, you're buying votes with the health of ordinary South Africans. You're spending the health of ordinary South Africans in order to buy votes. And that's it's a it's an absolutely dastardly act and an immoral thing to do on the part of the government. No, definitely, and of course, the 
in many ways, the most tragic thing is I think that it ultimately probably won't even buy that many votes because it's not going to make even for the poorest South Africans healthcare any better. Um, as you know, people have pointed out, it's going to be this massive pot of money mm. that the temptation to, shall we say, um, skim a lot of the top <laughs> will be quite high. Uh, I mean, it's, it's going to be an unbelievable looting spree, but, you know, indeed. on an inconceivable level. But the thing is, uh, I think in order to, to get votes, all you have to say, be able to do is say that you're doing it. You don't, have, like, yes. you don't actually have to do it, uh, especially yes. here in an election. You know, just say, no, from 2020, uh, 2034, uh, all healthcare will be free. That sort of might be enough if you're showing progress towards that goal. Of course, what always frustrates me about that line of argument is that, you know, we really do have free healthcare in South Africa for the most effectively free healthcare. The problem is it's just bad. Yeah, <laughs> so, and, and, and also, you know, where, where it does work, it actually works very well. Um, so, you know, from what you hear from the, the public hospitals and clinics in the Western Cape, in some rural areas in, in, in the free state, it, it works surprisingly well. Uh, you know, you just need to manage it properly and not, not steal so much money. Then it's, it's not a bad system. Um, yeah, so it's a <laughs> really a bad idea. So... Um, I don't know if there's any other pieces of legislation you want to talk about. Um, we still have some of the threats to property rights through the expropriation bill lurking out there. That hasn't gone away. Um, the public procurement system is still a complete sort of mess, and, and the government has been advancing that further into, I think, the wrong direction. Uh, we've also had the Electoral Amendment Act, um, which we've criticized as having quite a few problems, but it seems to sort of... Uh, there's been, I think, a tiny improvement made to it, um, and it looks like at this point it's kind of too late to avoid that. Uh, that that being the way that we go through the next election. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts on, on any of those very quickly before we sort of move on. No, I think uh, preferential procurement is a good one to speak about, um, and the reason for that is that it seems a bit dry, academic, public finance related. You know, it's the government doing government things. Do you really need to worry about it? But yes, you do. Um, preferential or, or the government procurement is about a trillion rand per year in South Africa. It's a huge amount of money that's being spent. And the way the system works at the moment is that it, it provides for surcharges for transformation goals. That's what preferential procurement is about. So effectively, the state is spending more money than it needs to in order to buy goods and services. And it is taxpayers who spend more than it should be. And it is the recipients of those goods and services who get less than they should be getting. That's the terrible thing. Um, so it's making you know transformed companies better off. Um, hurrah for that. But it's leaving the poorer South Africans and ordinary South Africans with much worse outcomes. The scale of it is a bit hard to assess, um, but there was an IMF report out uh, middle of the year that suggested that the premium being paid is about 20%. So that's 200 billion rand. That's a huge amount of money. And uh, the way to think about this is that if you were doing value for money procurement in South Africa, you uh, might want to tar the road from the main road to the village, which is a dirt road. And if you do it on a value for money basis, you can tar all the way, the 10 kilometers to the village. But if you're doing it on a preferential procurement basis, you can only do eight kilometers, then you run out of money, right? So you can't, you can't do the actual work. And this is multiplied thousandfold across the country. Now, the, the roads don't get tarred. The water connections don't get made. The electricity doesn't reach, you know, the last house in the village. Uh, everything is worse because of this. And the people most impacted by it are the poor people who are dependent on state services to the largest extent. 
this is what frustrates me so much about this debate is that preferential procurement BE, these policies, they're quite frankly, it's 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 almost like if you kind of took the race stuff out of it, you kind of took the, the blanket of race out of it and you said, here's a policy which is going to make rich, connected political businessmen much wealthier at the cost of the poor and the middle class, everyone would be up in arms as this being a massive violation of people's rights. But that's exactly what it is. Um, and the sort of, uh, the, the kind of excuse this is somehow improving the plight of black South Africans has been kind of used as a, as a reason to justify it. But it is one of the most, in, uh, if the stated aim is to improve the life of black South Africans, and this is perhaps the most counterproductive policy the government has, um, which is... Yeah, and, and make, making things even worse is that this amendment to the Public Procurement um, Act uh, makes makes it even worse. So, you know, when you were paying a 20% premium before, which is one of the things that uh, now Chief Justice Zondo criticized when he was heading the Zondo Commission. And he said, look, you know, sure, there's a, this tension between sort of transformation aims on the one hand and value for money procurement. But actually, you've got to make a decision one of them has to be more important than the other. They can't be equally important. And when you're making that decision, value for money has got to be more important. Um, but what this act now does is that it introduces even more criteria for preferencing. It introduces even more, um, it makes it even more difficult for procuring officers to do their jobs properly. It increases the discretionary section of, of, of the provincial sorry, of the preferential pre uh, premium from 10 to 20 points or percent to up to 40%. So, you know, everything's going to become more expensive. You'll get less bang for your buck, less services for your money, less goods for your money. It's a terrible thing. A very, very bad uh, uh, legislative, legislative change. Indeed. Um, so sort of, I think my last question on this stuff is, I think... You can very clearly say, and this is kind of a summary of, of many of the things we've been talking about now, you can say that South Africa is trapped in something close to a no-growth nightmare. Our GDP numbers are, you know, we have a tiny bit of growth, and we have a bit of a dip, and then we have a tiny bit of growth, and we have a bit of a dip, and the unemployment numbers is a tiny reduction, and there's a growth, and there's a... We seem to sort of be in this purgatory where it's just continuing economic malaise forever. Um, how do we get out of this? It's not that hard. <laughs> um, so I think the most drastic way maybe to express how bad it has been is that GDP per capita, um, so the, good, the value of all the goods and services produced in South Africa each year divided by the number of people in South Africa, that's GDP per capita, has not increased since 2007. You know, that's now 16 years of no increase in the, the average income of South Africans, or wealth of South Africans for that matter. It is a terrible outcome, very, very bad. And the reason for it is sometimes sought in external factors. You, know, you might say it's the, the global financial crisis, or it's COVID, or it's a commodity boom that has stopped, or whatever the reasons are. But the reality is that the causes are to be sought within South Africa. And these are homemade causes. What this means on the positive side is that there is an opportunity for us to get out of it um, as a country. Uh, and as I said at the outset, it's actually not that hard. You just need to stop with the really bad policies that you've got at the moment, introduce better policies, 
and then things are going to work. Uh, you know, it's, uh, other countries have done it. There's plenty of research on how to do it. And all we've got to do is actually do it. And uh, it's going to be a big part, big part of the IRR's work next year to put the focus squarely on the question of growth, uh, because that is, you know, the, the one inexcusable failing of the government. It's one that it can't really explain away uh, with excuses. Uh, it has to own up to the fact that it has not produced growth uh, since 2007 on a, on a per capita basis. And voters should know about this, and they should make a choice for parties that adopt the policies that produce growth. And then we can get growth and improve the situation in the country. This point is, I think, very clear when you compare us to other countries around the world. You sort of look at, you know, basically Indonesia, Vietnam, um, you know, all sorts of countries around the world. You will find that while those countries in, for a long time were very far behind us in GDP per capita, they're now actually either passing us or creeping up on us. Um, and that's just because for so long we've been nothing so flat. And uh, when you put us in, in the sort of global perspective, you realize how the last 16 years have been so, uh, you know, we, our expectations have actually been too low. I think a lot of South Africans kind of have thought to themselves, oh, well, we're not doing great, but, you know, how well are we supposed to have really done? If you look at a lot of other countries in the world, you can see how well we could have done in these 30 years at uh, getting rid of many of the, the deep social problems that we have. Okay. Um, I don't know how easy a question this is to answer, um, but if you were to identify a single person for the year who you thought added positively to the country <laughs> in some way or made it did important things. Um, who would you say it is? I know it's can be a little bit difficult sometimes to think to sort of peer through all the muck because in South Africa, I think we're blessed with many complex personalities <laughs> who are both good and bad, but uh, who would you say in your opinion, did something noteworthy and positive? So I, this is a, tough question, but I think what I might do is suggest that the trio of DA mayors deserve this title of Person of the Year for Good, uh, because I think Jordan Hill-Lewis in Cape Town has been doing a really outstanding job um, building on the base that he built over the past few years, uh, building it out further, constructing a really strong profile and great performance in Cape Town and attracting investment. Uh, putting together an investment plan that I think outstrips probably that of Johannesburg, Durban, and Okorolini put together. Um, so really, really impressive, doing very well. Then we have uh, Silius Brink in Tswane, Pretoria, I think also doing a really good job. And Jordan Hill-Lewis and Silius Brink, I think, have something in common, which is that they had, they had to face a challenge, each of them this year, where they had to uh, face down, um, stare down a very determined opponent. In the case of Cape Town, it was the, the, the taxis that were protesting about their taxis being impounded for violations. Um, that stare down was won by Jordan Hillewis. He didn't back down in the face of intimidation and threats. And so there's Brink did the same thing in Atswane uh, during a municipal workers' strike. The third mayor in the group is Chris Papas in Umgeni in KwaZulu-Natal, uh, who's done, uh, I think, achieved a lot since he took office uh, end of 2021 and is now running as the KwaZulu-Natal premier candidate for the DA. And again, in his very distinctive way, quite different from the two others, I think is, is uh, creating a profile, um, a persona, and is building on proper strengths. 
So these three, um, I think, did really well. And uh, all things being equal, they should go far. I, I think that that's something I pretty much concur with. Um, and it also kind of speaks to the opposite of what I was saying earlier about uh, you know, uh, local government being having having talent chased out of it. I think they kind of have bucked that trend. I think that is a real trend, but I think they have done pretty well. Um, or, although, you know, uh, in the case, I think, of Salias, he's still got a lot of kills to climb um, before he can truly uh, claim to have made some of the, the, the sort of successes that the DA has in, the, in Cape Town. Uh, all right. Now the sort of reverse question. Do you think that there has been a particularly malevolent figure for South Africa in the past year uh, who you think has really not done a great job or fumbled a great opportunity or or maybe just kind of generally made things a little bit worse for the country? I think for, for this... Uh honor, I would nominate the president of our country, Sir Ramaphosa, you know, who's been, I think, very adept at getting the media and the business community to eat out, out of his hand um, at the beginning of his term and has continued to play this role of assuaging concerns, um, appeasing his opponents, while at the same time pushing ahead with this really devastating legislative agenda that we were speaking about just now, NHI, EWC, employment equity, preferential procurement. Uh, it's a whole raft of policies that will be uh, extremely harmful to South Africa's prospects in the years ahead if they come, if, if they get passed and, and enacted into law. So I think he, he's the prime candidate. Yeah, I'd put him right up there at number one. I definitely agree with that, particularly because you know, he has had so much opportunity to change things over the last couple of years. Um, he, he still, despite his big drop in popularity, remains the most popular politician in South Africa, although, you know, now it's not by very much, um, uh, whereas at once upon a time he was far and ahead. Uh, you know, he had this commanding control of the ANC. He had all these things going for him, and he has just whittled them away and continued to whittle them away, and uh, in many cases advanced things that even Zuma actually have managed to get through in his time as leader of the ANC. So I, I agree with you completely on that one. Okay, I think that's pretty much it for today. Uh, we hope that you found this show interesting. This is our last show for the year. We will be back in the middle of January next year with the Daily Friend Show. Um, if you do enjoy our content, please share these videos, like them, subscribe to them on YouTube. If you're listening on the audio apps, please do give us a good review. And we really appreciate that. And uh, thank you very much, everyone, for watching. We'll see you next year. Have a wonderful end of year.